Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 11. John 11, last week we began looking at this account of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. We looked at verses 1 through 16 last week. This morning we pick up with verse 17 and we will read through verse 27. Please give your careful attention to the holy and errant word of God. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. A new Harris poll came out at the end of last year describing the beliefs of Americans. And one of the many points that I drew from that survey was that according to this poll, the percentage of Americans who believe that there is a soul in us that survives after death, the percentage of Americans who believe in that, who believe in life after death for a soul, is down from 2009, the percentage of Americans who believe that was 71%. In 2013, only four years later, the percentage is 64%. That big of a drop in a belief in life after death in just four years doesn't really surprise me in light of the growing uh, prominence and exposure of the teachings of atheism and materialism and what I would call probably one of the most uh, pernicious teachings, which is the religion of scientism. I'm not talking about science. Science is a noble and wonderful calling that many of you are called to in this room. But scientism is the religious belief that Truth can only be found through the means of science. And that is a prominent belief in our culture. Back in the 1960s, a PCA minister by the name of D. James Kennedy came up with a training method for equipping Christians to go out and share the gospel. It was called Evangelism Explosion. It became, during the next few decades, a powerful tool for spreading the gospel message. Many of you, I'm sure, have either been trained in it or at least have come across it. 
trainers and trainees in that program would visit homes and they would strike up conversations and they would try to bridge the conversation from normal everyday matters into spiritual matters so they could present the gospel by asking what was called two diagnostic questions. The first diagnostic question was, have you come to a place in your spiritual life where you can say that you know for certain that if you were to die today, that you would go to heaven? The second diagnostic question was, suppose that you were to die today and stand before God and he were to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Now, it's interesting that in that training, we were told and taught to expect that the answer to the first question, are you certain that if you died, you'd go to heaven? The answer to that first question would undoubtedly be yes, or at least I hope so. And then the second question became the crucial question because with that question, in terms of what they expected to be the basis on which they were admitted into heaven is where you would find out what they're really trusting in and then you could address that with the gospel. But what's interesting to me in light of that Harris poll is that people don't believe in life after death like they used to. 64% of the people, it says, believe in life after death so the answer to that first question is not going to be the same as it was a generation ago and it's not surprising to me then that evangelism explosion is not as effective as it used to be not because it's anything wrong with the training process but because the culture has changed so much we began our study of john 11 last week and we saw that in this chapter jesus is dealing with a family that he loved very deeply and very dearly. The family of Lazarus and his two sisters, Martha and Mary. And this family, as we find out at the beginning of the chapter, has been confronted with the reality of death because as the chapter begins, Lazarus is on his deathbed, seriously ill. And so, as we saw last week, Martha and Mary desperately send a messenger to Jesus to tell him that the one whom he loves, Lazarus, is suffering and near death. And then we saw in verses 5 and 6 where it says, because Jesus loved this family, he waited two days before he left. Because Jesus loved that family, he delayed in responding to the request for help. He waited two days and then left after he knew that Lazarus had died. And we saw that the reason for that delay is the same reason for many of the delays that we experience in God's grace in our lives. It's so that the Lord can teach us faith, so that he can grant to us a gift of faith. And there is no greater gift that you can receive in life than the gift of faith in Jesus Christ. And so Jesus then, at the end of the passage we looked at, says, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, and I go to awaken him. And so as we look at the rest of the story now, I want you to notice, you've already noticed, and you'll see it as we go, this is such a fantastic miracle that Jesus does by calling Lazarus from the dead by the power of his word alone. But the focus in this chapter, it's a long chapter, and the focus in the chapter is not on what happens at the tomb. Matter of fact, that's covered in just a few short verses. The focus in the chapter is what's going on in the hearts of Martha and Mary. 
Because again, this is about faith. And what we see is these two women who already had faith growing in faith through the way in which God deals with them through Jesus Christ in this situation. In this case, in this section we're looking at this morning, he deals with Martha. And here he's addressing a central question that we all have to face at some point in life, which is what is our hope in the face of death? When death invades our lives, how do we deal with it? What is our hope? What do we hold on to? It says in the text that it had been four days since Lazarus had died, and Jesus finally arrives on the outskirts of Bethany, the little town where this family lived. If this story were being filmed for a movie, I suspect that the director, if he had any sense of the gospel at all, would want to have an artistic scene as Jesus is walking into Bethany where off in the distance you would see looming the city of Jerusalem. Because this Bethany was only less than two miles outside of Jerusalem. Because what Jesus does here for this family must be seen in the light of what he's about to do in Jerusalem. He's only days away from going to the cross and facing death head on himself. It says here that many people had gathered in the home of Mary and Martha. Very typical in a Jewish funeral situation that the grieving period would last for a week after the death. And it was common for friends and family members to descend upon the home of the family that had lost a loved one. And some of them would even stay for days. Glad we don't do that tradition anymore. But so you had people gathering, and, and John emphasizes there were many people, and many people from Jerusalem that were gathering in this small town. So what this indicates for a lot of scholars is that this family was probably a prominent family that you had many people coming, and particularly influential people probably, from Jerusalem coming. And we know from the story that happens in chapter 12, we'll get to later, that probably that they had some, some wealth, that this was probably a prosperous family. Well, hearing that Jesus had arrived in town, Martha, the oldest sister, runs out to meet him. And as we get to know Martha in this incident, one thing jumps out as right away. She is a woman of faith. She already believes in Jesus. She already is in a relationship with Jesus. She already trusts in him. And so as we look at where her faith is as the story begins, the first thing we see is that she already believes that Jesus is the Lord and sustainer of life. She clearly trusted in his power and authority over disease and and injury and even death. She says in verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, I have to admit, the first time I read that, and maybe the first time you read it too, it's hard not to read an angry tone into her words, isn't it? She sounds a little ticked off about it, especially when we know that Jesus delayed two days before leaving, and he didn't leave until he knew that Lazarus had died. It's interesting that every commentary I read on this took the position, and they may very well be right, we're into speculative territory here, but they took the position that she wasn't really angry, it may sound that way, she wasn't really angry, she was just disappointed that he didn't get there in time, and they're basing that on other comments that she makes in this chapter, and so they may well be right, 
I'm sure that both Mary and Martha said many times during those few days while Lazarus was on his deathbed, I'm sure they said many times, looked at each other and said, if only Jesus was here. If only he was here. But you know, and I don't want to judge Martha on just the scant evidence we have in the Gospels, but honestly, from what little we know, it wouldn't surprise me if Martha was a little ticked off and angry and that she was actually was chastising Jesus, a little bit at least. Because you remember the story we alluded to last week back in Luke chapter 10. Earlier in Jesus' ministry, he had come to this beloved family and he was visiting with them, with him and his disciples, and Martha was off preparing the meal and caring for their needs. But Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus with the disciples soaking in his teaching. And you remember when Martha comes to him, listen, here's an exact quote of what she says to Jesus. She says, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me alone to serve? Tell her to help me. That fits with her saying to Jesus here in this text, if only you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. I think she's a little ticked off. And I think she's a bossy older sister. That's the way oldest children are. They're bossy. I was the youngest kid in my family, by the way. (laughs) But even if, and I'm not going to, that's not a big point. Even if her tone was slightly inappropriate and she was rebuking Jesus, if you look at what her words say, it is a profound statement of faith. It is a profound statement of faith. If Jesus had been there, He had the power to heal and to drive away death. She believed that Jesus, based on what she had seen and heard, she believed that Jesus had the power to make lame people walk and deaf people people hear and blind people see. In verse 22, it even goes beyond that, doesn't it? She believes in something even more than as a power to heal. She says, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now, as we study the passage, especially as we get into next week's text, it's going to be difficult to know, did she really believe that Jesus could, four days after Lazarus had died, did she really believe that she could somehow bring him back to life? Things that she says later lead you to think, well, maybe she didn't. Or maybe, more likely, she's a lot like you and me. Her faith sounds really good at some moments and not so good at others. And she wavered. She's a little unstable in her faith. But she did believe that Christ could still do something for her in her grief. I don't know for sure what that was, but she knew that Christ could still do something for her. And she believed it because he had a unique relationship with the Father. It's because he, she knew that he had a special in with God the Father, that whatever he asked the Father to do, the Father would do for him. She's saying an awful lot there about her understanding of who Jesus is and what he is capable of and what his relationship with the Father is. Over in chapter 14, Jesus would say, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And Martha believed this. She'd put her trust in Jesus to that degree. Death is the ultimate test of your faith, really. Is your trust in Christ real or is it hypothetical? 
We live in such comfortable and easy and prosperous circumstances that it's hard to know sometimes whether our faith in Christ is real or just hypothetical. Do you really trust in Christ for your daily bread? Do you really trust in Christ for your health and your safety, your needs in life? Or are you really trusting in your job, your employer, your bank account, your insurance, your doctors? Where is your trust, ultimately? What death does is it comes along, it, 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 it invades like an enemy into your life, and it steals your pillars. It steals those supports in your life that you lean on, that you, that you depend upon, and leaves you empty-handed. And causes you to ask, what do I really trust? Jesus challenges Martha to take it to another level of faith, though. She already had faith in Christ. She believed that he is the Lord of life, he's the sustainer of physical life, that he can care for her needs. She believed that. But he challenges her to another level. He challenges her to believe that he is the assurance of eternal life, both physical and spiritual. In verse 23, Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. Now to us, that sounds like, wow, that's great news. But you have to understand, you know, she actually gives kind of a ho-hum response, doesn't she? She says, well, you know, basically tell me something I don't know. She says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. You have to understand that in a Jewish funeral, in a gathering of grieving Jews like this, many believing Jews would come and say to the family, you know, we have this assurance. We, we, you know, this, this has got to be comforting to you that you will see this loved one again in the resurrection at the last day. That was something they would have heard probably a number of times in the recent days. So Martha is not blown away by that statement. She'd already heard it from a number of people probably. Belief in a final resurrection was a common and probably the dominant belief of the Jewish people in that day. We know that it was a controversy, a theological controversy among the Jews in the first century. The Pharisees, there were two main parties among the Jews, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees believed in the final resurrection life after death and the final resurrection. The Sadducees were the theological liberals. They did not believe in life after death or a final resurrection. Martha shows herself here to have believed in the scriptures, what God's word had said, the Old Testament. Job has this amazing confession of faith in Job 19, verses 25 and 26. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. That's an amazing statement of belief in the final resurrection 2,000 years before Christ. In the book of Daniel, it gives this prophecy. Daniel received this prophecy from the Lord. It says, your people shall be delivered and everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Of course, we have some of the great and most loved words of David himself in the Psalms. In Psalm 23, he says, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Or as read earlier in Psalm 16, Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. 
as the New Testament reveals, that could only be ultimately fulfilled in the resurrection of Christ, but it guarantees our resurrection. And then in Psalm 73, the psalmist says, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Martha believed the scriptures, what the word of God had promised. She was a woman of faith, but her faith needed to stretch because she needed to understand the relationship between Jesus Christ, the one standing before her, and death itself. That he is the assurance of resurrection and eternal life. Listen to what Jesus had said earlier. There's actually a profound and and, and even audacious statement that Jesus makes back in John chapter 5, beginning in verse 25. Listen to this section. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus is claiming to be the one who on that great day is going to call us from our tombs, from our graves, some to everlasting life, some to everlasting punishment. He would be the one who had the keys to death and hell. Martha needed to understand that that her assurance of resurrection and eternal life was in Christ alone. Over in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about this, how Christ's resurrection guarantees our resurrection. Let me read to you what Paul says. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who who have fallen asleep or who have died in Christ have perished. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. The wages of sin is death. The reason we die is because we are sinners. But Christ has died in our place. He has paid for our sins. God's wrath against our sins has been fully satisfied and turned away. And he has given us, by faith, a gift of his righteousness. And that's the basis on which we are accepted by God today and for all eternity. It's based on what Christ did on the cross, and that was proven to be accepted by the Father in our place because Christ was raised from the dead. And since he is risen from the dead, we can be sure that we will be raised from the dead if we put our faith fully in him as the only way to live forever. Jesus, in verse 4, says that Lazarus, as a believer, has not fallen asleep, or not died, but fallen asleep. He has fallen asleep. What he's alluding to there, and the New Testament writers pick up on this, and they keep using this through the rest of the New Testament, that when believers die, they don't die in the world sense of the term, they fall asleep because it means they're going to awaken in the very presence of God, accepted completely because of what Christ has done. They fall asleep. The sting of death is gone, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Death has no claim on us. 
because Christ has paid for our sins and given us his righteousness. Death cannot touch us. Death is a release from our hard life in a fallen world in the struggle against sin and suffering. And we awaken in perfection in his presence when we die because of what Christ has done. Martha needed to understand that, that the basis of her assurance of eternal resurrected life was in Christ. But that's not even the highest level that Jesus calls her to in this incident. He calls her to an even higher level of faith, that Jesus is not only the giver and sustainer of our physical life in this world, and not only is he the assurance of resurrection life for eternity in the next world, but he is the very essence of life itself. That's what he says. She needed to understand and believe that. In verse 25, we get the fifth of the seven great I am statements in John. We've already covered four of them. Here we come to the fifth great I am statement where he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He doesn't just give life here and in the future, but he is life. That's the very consistent testimony of John's gospel. Jesus Christ is life. How would you define what life is to you? What is life to you? Is life the accumulation of the beating of your heart? Is that it, that sense of consciousness that's in your mind, in your brain? Is it the sum total of your experiences? Is that what life is? The scriptures tell us that Jesus is your life. He is the life, the essence of real life. That's what John's gospel teaches back in chapter 1. It says, in him, in Christ, was life, and the life was the light of men. In chapter 3, John says, whoever, Jesus says, John quotes Jesus saying, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Chapter 5, the Son gives life to whom he will, and whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He has not He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And then in chapter 10, it says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Do you hear what he's saying? The moment that Jesus Christ enters into your life, becomes Lord and Savior of your life, that's when life begins, real life. I remember back, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, when the abortion debate in our culture was really heating up, the big question that was debated on both sides, the pro-abortion, the pro-life sides, was when does life begin? Crucial question for determining when abortion is wrong. When does life begin? We don't hear them talk about that much anymore because I think the pro-life side won that argument scientifically, medically, but plain truth is Life does begin. Physical life begins at conception. But spiritual life begins at regeneration and conversion to Christ. That's when real life begins. Life, according to Scripture, is being reconciled to God. No God, have life. No God, have no life. 
however that bumper sticker goes. Life is being reconciled to God. The Bible presents this gloriously beautiful picture that's beyond our imagination of what is called shalom, the place where God's peace reigns in your life. And the beautiful truth is is that that doesn't begin when Christ comes again, whenever that is in the future. It doesn't begin at death. It begins when you put your trust in Christ. That's when that resurrection life begins. That's when you begin to experience peace with God and shalom, life under God's blessing and guidance. That's real life. Last year, the infamous atheist Richard Dawkins, who is one of the leading spokesmen for scientism, the religion of scientism, he appeared on the Jon Stewart show. And Jon Stewart, I appreciated John asking this question. He asked him the question, Mr. Dawkins, what happens after we die? And Richard Dawkins stumbled around for a little bit, and then he finally said, I don't know what happens to us, but I know that our consciousness is wrapped up in our brains, and I know that our brains rot in the grave. The idea of surviving our own death is palpable, wishful thinking that goes against everything we understand about how the nervous system works. We are apes. We are African apes. What's interesting is very shortly thereafter, John Stewart ended the interview by smirking and saying, so Richard, do you want to go get high? And I thought, what an appropriate way to end that conversation. Because that's what the book of Ecclesiastes says. If there is no reality beyond the grave, if there is no one above the sun, all is vanity. Eat, drink, and be merry, or get high if that's your thing, because tomorrow you die. Jesus brings the truth. He brings life, because he himself is life. He is not only the Lord and sustainer of physical life in this world, he's not only the assurance of eternal life in the world to come, but he is the essence of real life now and forever. And so he ends by presenting this challenge to the faith of Martha. He says to her, do you believe this? That's all that's important. Do you believe this, Martha, that I am the resurrection and the life? We always talk about how great Peter's confession of faith was in Matthew 16. Great confession of faith. It's nothing compared to Martha's here. She knocks it out of the park. Look at verse 27. She says, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Reminds me of the famous quote by C.S. Lewis. He says, Christianity, if it is false, it is of no importance. And if it is true, it is of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending Christ. We were dead in sins and would have remained dead 
and under your wrath for eternity if he had not come to save us. Thank you that he died in our place. Thank you that he was raised from the dead and that he has given us that same victory over the grave. More importantly, he has reconciled us to you and we will belong to you forever and no one can take us from Christ's hand. Thank you for that assurance and confidence. May we live lives that reflect that level of faith. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.